the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist. She serves as the chair of the board for the National Council on Aging and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Also ran the Area Agency on Agency and Aging in Bear County before coming to WellMed and running the WellMed Charitable Foundation. As we take a look at our next guest coming up in just a moment here, Carol, Heidi Crockett deals with an issue that a whole lot of seniors, uh, no surprise, don't like talking about very much out in the open, and that's intimacy and sexuality. Well, and it's probably their children that want to talk about it even less. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they don't want to know that mommy and daddy do it, yeah. other than that's how they got here. Yeah, that we, yeah that's, this is a subject that, I, you know, years ago when I first <laughs> got into the business, um, I was in Palm Springs, California, and the hospital there decided to do, you know, sex and the older person. It was the largest turnout they had ever had. I think at the time they had like 76 people wow. show up when they normally had like 12. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, this was many moons ago, but things have not changed that much. We do have conversations, but we probably don't talk about it quite as much as we should. And we'll talk to Heidi Crockett about that in just a moment. But before, Heidi, uh, you have a couple of updates from uh, someone that we love having as a guest here on Caregiver SOS on Air, Carol Levine, uh, and she's been here to speak to our uh, annual caregiver conference. Uh, what have you got from Carol? Well, uh, the you know, I just want to say, again, yes, we love Carol Levine. She's with the United Hospital Fund, which is in New York, and uh, this is an institution that's very forward-thinking. It isn't about, hosp- you know, it's not about, it's not a hospital group. Uh, it's a nonprofit that really looks at patient care, and Carol Levine does their research on caregiving issues, and they're really ahead of most of us in terms of thinking about caregiving issues. And and she recently did a study between, you know, we this past week was the big vote on Brexit in the United Kingdom. So I don't know, maybe that was this what spurred her on to, to look at the United Kingdom comparing their work in caregiving in the United States. So, you know, first thing she says is, um, you know, the line that England, the United Kingdom or England and and the United States are two countries separated by a common language, um, which uh, <laughs> you know, that's a great line. So, and, and I think she gives Oscar Wilde the credit for that. But <laughs> it, so in the in the UK, they use the word carer, which I actually find a little hard to say. We say caregiver, caregiver, which, which is hard nobody to say. which nobody knows that they are a caregiver, right? And apparently, the carers. Uh, carers, or however you say it, I see, there's that language thing, um, also don't know that that's who they are. They have to have a campaign. But what is different in the United Kingdom is they actually have quite a few national surveys um, that are asking question about the condition of carers, caregivers in the U.K. What are their challenges? They are developing national policy. Um, and here in the United States, we have no national policy. They have programs that if you are making under a certain amount a week, you can actually get paid if you're not if you're not working um, or you're working you know less than full time like less than thirty five hours a week. You don't make much money. You can get paid to care for your loved one because that's what you're doing anyway. And here, caregivers are out three to four hundred thousand uh, over their lifetime. By giving up work to That's be a right. caregiver. And it's just so crazy expensive to, to try to pay for care in this country. Um, and then the other, the last uh, difference that she pointed out is that they're actually doing a lot of work about with caregivers who are under the age of 18. So children, 
caregivers. And, and almost by definition in the United States, a caregiver is someone who is 18 and older. Very few organizations dealing with teenage caregivers, children caregivers. A- and who would those be? Let's, let's think about mom who has mental and dad who have mental health problems, substance abuse, maybe in and out of jail. Um, maybe they live with grandparents. The grandparents have gotten older. So um, it, it's, it's a big challenge. It, it's a big challenge. And, it, and it's just interesting um, that why we are so very much the same, we're also – uh, very different, and and what Carol is really pushing for is there's a there's a national public health survey that goes out um, every couple of years from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and there's actually an eight question caregiver module, and the last uh, um, you know this is with the Burfus study, which is kind of a funny name, it's the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance. Um, I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Behavioral risk, risk factor surveillance Burfus. system. Burfus is easier. And, and all states do it, and it really talks about the health of the community. They can adopt to, ha- to ask these caregiver questions, but only 24 states have done so, so far. Um, and they may not even ask all of the questions. Well, here in Bear County, the Health Collaborative, and you were on their board for a while, does the uh, a biennial health assessment across this community. That's right. And we did encourage them to um, include caregiver questions and questions about uh, senior health because most of the time, if you look at the Burfus results, there are the public health results, there's a lot of information about children. There's a lot of information about teen pregnancy and drug use and those kind of crimes um, and almost nothing about seniors. Uh, and caregivers specific. Uh, but she closes with, you know, we do need, we need more information. We need national surveys. And then she has another great quote to close, Yogi Berra, who says, you've got to be very careful if you don't know where you're going because you might not get there, which is exactly what we're doing in caregiving And that explains space. why uh, Carol Levine was a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award winner. That's right. You know, she's got that right. And then the second piece from Carol Levine um, the United Hospital Fund has a series of called Next Steps in Care, and they recently re-released their um, manual on short-term rehab services in an inpatient setting. So this is a guide. If your loved one goes to the hospital and instead of coming home, they go to a rehab center, right? That happens very Pretty frequently, typical. especially if you've got someone with a broken hip. Um, you know, somebody who's too frail to be at home, they go to rehab services. They have a comprehensive guide to walk you through the things you should be thinking about as the caregiver. It's told it's a guide for the family member. Um, they have it in English, Spanish, Chinese, and Russian. You can download it on your you know, iPhone, on your, your mobile device, uh, and take a look at it. Uh, and what's different about this re-release is that it includes new information on the, the case from, I think it was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it was the lawsuit for CMS that talked about the improvement standard. You know, you and I have talked about this before, right. and Carol has, that there's this, f- this false assumption that a person only qualifies for rehabilitative services as long as they're improving. I think most of us have had a relative that was discharged from rehab because failure to improve. CMS has said, this is not a standard. This is not a requirement. And people are still quoting it. And Dave uh, Kidney here has fought that on behalf of his a, a, mother for several uh, a long time now. Well, uh, in, the, in the court case, Hemo versus Sibelius right. was the lawsuit that said they can't do this. And so CMS saying, is saying we've never had that standard. It's always been misinterpreted. And they specifically give you information that rehab services are appropriate if they are needed to maintain function or to prevent decline. And who is it, you know, that we have on our loved ones that are, we don't need to maintain their functioning and prevent decline? Right. That, you know, so they are entitled to those services. And that's really great information to arm yourself with because you will hear these types of um, excuses coming out of rehab facilities. Yeah, I'm sorry we're discharging your mom. She's just That's not right. making CMS progress. That's right. CMS isn't going to pay for it because you're not making progress. Right. Wrong. So important guide to have. Um, and there's a, a companion uh, care guide called uh, When Short-Term Rehab Turns Into a Long-Term Stay. And that's for the family who they put their loved one into short-term rehab, and it turns out it's really not going to be appropriate for them to go home probably ever. Uh, and it walks you through that transition into wow. a long-term setting. For which most of us do not have the financial resources. Yes. So look at Next Step in Care. So Next Step in Care or unitedhospitalfund.org. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. 
I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernio. We've got time for a couple more. And well, while we're talking about things no one wants to talk about, <laughs> well, like sex, the, you know, I thought I would just group it all in one show. If you sit around, a play, and we're going to be talking about sex and seniors in a couple of moments with Heidi Crockett, but if you sit around a bunch of seniors at a senior center, for example, uh, there are a couple topics that come up always. One is, oi, I am so constipated. Well, there you go. And so... Actually, this article came across my desk from United Healthcare, who's helping everyone to live better lives, and they had the best foods to eat when you're constipated. Cool. And I thought, wow, that's a topic no one wants to hear about, but they do want to hear about it. They just won't admit it. And what's on that list? And so what is on that list? Well, number one is a favorite of everyone, oatmeal. It's got all that wonderful fiber. Um and it's, you know, it, how can you be bored with all of the wonderful things that you can put in oatmeal to make it taste better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. So and blueberries. That, it's, good for your, it's good for your heart. So that's a win-win. Number two on the list, water. H2O is the gift that keeps giving. If you're constipated, wow, drink more water because you definitely need it. So. And too many of us don't drink enough. And, and many of us. And, you know, a lot of times older people are constipated. The person you're caring for may be constipated because of a medication. Right. So you still have to combat that. Water's a great way to do it, as well as these foods. You know about high-fiber cereals besides the oatmeal. You know about whole wheat bread. You may not know about strawberries, which are yummy. They have, you know, all those little seeds. Guess what? those seeds are fiber really? so eating strawberries is you know a kind of a tasty way right. uh, to deal with that constipation um, almonds almonds are heart healthy they've got um, 3.5 grams of fiber in them so um, they are small but mighty constipation fighters those almonds uh, broccoli and I you know under broccoli there's a quote that says <laughs> if you don't like veggies or fruit for that matter you probably are a candidate for constipation because vegetables are so important um, and fruits, all that good fiber. And broccoli is a really good one. I love broccoli. Yeah, I do too. So um, 5.1 grams of insoluble fiber per cup of broccoli. It's not expensive. It's green. It is tasty. So I like it, it raw, try. right on the hoof. Yeah, right. If you don't want to taste your whatever it is that you're taking um, to get the constip- <laughs> to address your constipation, ground flaxseed—that is your choice. You can add it to almost anything: milkshakes, That's ice true. cream, whatever you cooked. You can't taste it. No, um, and it will also help. And it's high in omega threes, so it's actually good for depression and and your heart health. Popcorn is my favorite. Love popcorn. It is a whole grain snack. Just don't load it. Not not movie popcorn. Okay. No butter. No salt. No, not the butter and the salt. Um, black beans, yes, what they say about black beans is true, and there's a reason, and it's good for constipation. The musical fruit. That's all I'm going to say. Now, the one you might not think about, yogurt, because usually you think dairy products and constipation, no, no, no. But all of the, the good bacteria that lives oh. in yogurt is actually good for helping get things on track again. Now, you haven't so. mentioned prunes. Number 12, Every <laughs> the last one on the list, I saved the best for last. Thank you, Ron, because everything you heard about prunes is true. Stop you right there. We're going to talk in just a moment to Heidi Crockett as we take a look at sexual health issues and as they affect seniors. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation, his goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we are so pleased you are with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. As we promised, 
We've got a pretty neat topic coming up right now with Heidi Crockett, a nationally known speaker and social worker. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. And Heidi Crockett, thank you so much for coming on with us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Well, you earned your master's in social work from the University of Georgia and did postgraduate training in sexual health uh, from the University of Michigan. And we thought one of the things that is rarely talked about but often thought about, uh, seniors and sexuality, uh, and, and especially for caregivers, some of whom may be the children of those seniors, man, they don't want to know about their parents doing it. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So how did you get into the topic, and, and and tell us a little bit about your thinking. Yeah, so what happened was I'm, I was working as a geriatric care manager for a company in Tampa, and I started doing the postgraduate training at the University of Michigan. So my boss, who's been always been very supportive of me expanding my horizons, I asked her if it would be okay if I did research on the area and then presented on the topic. And so as I was going through that program, it took me about three years, not only to finish the program with the University of Michigan, but also to get my ASEC certification. So over the course of the past three years, I've been researching and presenting on the area of sexuality. And I found, just to give a quick overview, two major issues around sexuality in older adults. Um, The first is that there's basically little to no sex education provided to seniors which I personally feel is disrespectful to seniors. Uh, And I think part of that could be related to funding issues. But that's one issue. And then the other issue is what you mentioned at the beginning, is this issue of uh, dementia and consent and sexuality. And and when adult children are starting to caregive their parents, that's when they'll start having to get involved in this discussion about sexuality, which they might not want to do. So tell us before we go on what ASECT is. Okay, ASECT stands for the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. It's a really long name, uh, but it's basically the certifying body for sex therapy in the United States. So it's a good resource if anyone's listening um, to this, uh, if they want further information, if they want an expert. If someone is ASEC certified, they've been through a lot of training to get that certification. Well, you know, this is an important topic because I don't know what the statistics are now, but at one point the fastest growing population with sexually transmitted diseases were seniors. It is. Uh, between 2002 and 2012, I know chlamydia and syphilis almost tripled for seniors. Uh, so we do know that the numbers are rising, and it is a concern. So I say it's disrespectful to seniors to not provide the service, but it's also a public health issue. And obviously use of condoms would have greatly reduced those numbers. Yes, and I always like to share this when I have an opportunity to provide education. A lot of people are not aware of the female condom. So this would be a great tool just to educate the general public about because oftentimes like two-thirds of men over the age of 60, they have erectile dysfunction. So they don't want to use a condom. So you're wondering how can we address the issue of STIs and still engage in sexual activity and pleasure. So the female condom, and also it empowers women um, to take control because oftentimes they're more at risk. There's uh, fewer men than women. Uh, so the female condom is a good option that a lot of people haven't heard of. Now, men with erectile dysfunction uh, shun a condom because they don't want to take the time to put it on for fear they'll lose that erection? Yes, yes. And you'll find in studies that it's really not used. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the short version is that, and, and I, you know, a lot of it is just a lack of education. You know, older adults, they think, I can't get pregnant anymore. So they remain sexually active, but they don't understand that they still need to protect themselves. Well, That's a good I point. A, yeah, and I have a go ahead. Go ahead, Carol. Well, no, I was going to say that you know that it, it's a brave new world. Um, you know, especially for seniors uh, that may, if they've been widowed recently. Um, you know, and you hear some consternation because they're not getting good information. Um, they do want to engage uh, in sexual activities, uh, and and they just don't. You know, they're worried about what's out there. Yes, 
And I, I've given talks at senior centers, dating safety for seniors. I talk about online romance scams. You know, NPR did a blurb on that. I, I know women over the age of 50 are the majority of the people who get scammed out of millions of dollars with online dating. So there's a lot of dangers, you know, not just the STIs, but, you know, getting your heart broken and, you know, getting your wallet hurt, too, related to this topic of intimacy and, and sex for older adults. Now, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, as we talk with Heidi Crockett, who speaks out on a variety of issues uh, involving stress, caregivers, and uh, sexuality. Uh, she also is a uh, mass, has a master's in social work, MSW. Well, so have you found, is the conversation changing? Are people more open? In the opening of the show, I was talking about how many moons ago when I started in the field, um, it was just absolutely a topic you never talked about, sex and seniors. Um, and yet when the local hospital did talk about it, they had standing room only uh, for people wanting to hear about it. Are things changing now or are we talking about it more openly? It's interesting. What I will say in my personal experience, and I've given many presentations just locally and more nationally now on the topic, when I go to senior centers, they seem to be well-received. Now, sometimes we, we can't get large participation. I think there's some shyness. If a talk has the word sex in the title, a lot of seniors don't want to be seen going to that talk. So I think there's ways that we have to be creative. Like I do talks such as brain health and intimacy tips. I think there are ways that, that's why I bring in the relational neuroscience and the importance of intimacy. I think there are ways we can bring sex education to seniors, but that's respectful. Uh, so I don't know if that totally answered your question. No, I think it does. I think it does because, you know, obviously if you're going someplace um, where you go to a senior center every day where everybody knows you is different than going uh, to someplace that it's a mixed crowd that you probably aren't going to see those folks. I think I you're found, right. I found in the talks I've given the seniors, they really want the information. And the stories they tell me are so heartwarming. I'll have couples come up, come up to me, a couple in their 80s. They just met and fell in love two years ago. They're both widows. They're totally in love. I mean, just incredible stories, you know, and sad stories. I had a guy, a man came up to me and he said, you know, by the way, with the Viagra, just tell people if someone has macular degeneration, they shouldn't take it um, because it can cause, it cause, like, my brother to pass away or, you know, just information and, and stories that people want to share. So I would say that seniors, in my experience, I think the bigger obstacle is more marketing people like at the who are the gatekeepers for some of the senior communities. They're a little hesitant uh, to market their community as a place where <laughs> there's talk about sex. Right, you know? right. But, you know, and that's where the conversations, particularly in the development of assisted living, where you've got uh, consenting adults living um, in residences and apartments and... You know, and even in nursing homes, uh, you know, in residential care facilities, there are discussions among the staff about residents who, you know, are having sex. I want to come back quickly to something that uh, you relayed and be sure we we don't scare people in terms of uh, Viagra and macular degeneration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in all of the uh, warnings that you hear on, on television about Viagra, uh, that one I haven't heard. Uh, so I, I don't know whether that's correct or not. I don't know if it's true or not. That's just, you know, what one person told me. But I think that's the dangers of these types of medications is that there are side effects. And oftentimes, sadly, they're not fully discussed. And, and with any medication, even with vaccines, you know, unfortunately, there are those cases. Right. Well, it affects uh, your vascular system, uh, letting blood flow more easily and restricting blood. So who knows? But uh, ask your doctor if you're concerned about it. Right. Exactly. So um, what are the big misconceptions? What are the, you know, the big topics that you, when you're talking about uh, intimacy and sexuality among seniors? Well, I have, a, I have a trivia question here. I have a big one. What do you think is the biggest indicator of whether a senior is sexually active or not? They're alive. <laughs> whether they're alive? Some people will say age. Do you, I mean, do you have any other guesses? The best indicator? The, yeah, I was yeah. going to say indicate. No, you've stumped the gerontologist. What is the indicator? A w whether a senior is sexually active or not. So the answer, people kind of tap themselves over the head. 
It's whether or not they're in a relationship. There you go. As opposed to one-night stands. As opposed to their age or their physical health. You know, people think, oh, (laughs) I don't know what it is. But if you ask around the general public, they have this magic number. I don't know whether it's 59 or 89, this magic number where they think that suddenly people stop becoming sexually active, which really just isn't true. Right. So So it's not... Yeah. Yeah, we we know we know that. But part of that is is the way sexuality is portrayed uh, in the movies. Uh, If you saw more realistic portrayal of seniors uh, having intimate relationships, uh, that stereotype would disappear. And that's one of the things I discuss is body image when I'm talking about sexuality uh, with older adults. We talk about that, and I think oftentimes older women struggle with what is it what does it look like what does it feel like to be a sexy woman you know i think especially and they they have to confront the media images all the ageism that that makes them feel like they're not sexy well that's and that's true i mean and that's something that's pervasive golly you know you're old if you're 30 um in this country and they still put teenage girls you know they use teenage girls as models on cosmetic packaging. So, for, especially for, I love those, I love the 19-year-old that's doing the anti-wrinkle cream. Yes. Have youthful skin. You're like, yeah, if I was 19, All I right. would. Heidi, stay with us. This is the short little break we warned you about. Don't go anywhere. Okay. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Our shows are all available on podcast, in addition to hearing them live, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 AM, The Answer. Well, thank you for being with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Delighted to have Heidi Crockett with us. She speaks out nationally on issues involving seniors and sexuality and caregiving as well as a licensed uh, master, as a master's in social work. And we're talking about uh, sexuality, seniors, and a variety of issues. And one that we uh, talked about briefly off the air when we first came on, Heidi, is the relationship between the stress that comes with caregiving and intimacy and sexuality. If the caregiver, for example, uh, is the uh, significant other for the person receiving care. Yeah, uh, it's a major stressor, the stress of caregiving. uh, You know, oftentimes, sometimes the role can seem more, if the person is more progressed in the disease process, it can seem almost more like a parent-child relationship that can interfere with the intimacy, the stress can interfere with the intimacy and the the sad part of that is that intimacy is such an incredible way to help and combat combat against stress well and and you're the author of a book um that's called caregiver stress neurobiology to the rescue you know which is a a fascinating title what does that mean I know. I kind of regret using the word neurobiology. People's eyes cross a little bit when I talk about the book. Um, It's based on interpersonal neurobiology. Another word for that is relational neuroscience. And relational neuroscience is really about the relational nature of our brain. So from attachment development, like ages six months to two years, that's so important. And actually on a radio show in March, you mentioned that people who retire and stop all social groups, that they are uh, at a 12% increased risk of death. Right, yeah, that so, lonely, loneliness is the new obesity. Yes, and so the book was based on the principles of relational neuroscience, um, but it uses this triangle that Dr. Dan Siegel, it's called the Triangle Wellbeing, I rename it the Wellness Triangle, it's a triangle, uh, to define optimal mental health. So one tip is a coherent mind, one tip is an integrated brain, and one tip is empathic relationships. So I go into the science behind those. I ask the reader questions about it. It's a workbook. But the majority of the book is actually on brain integration because oftentimes people don't really understand what that is. What, what is brain integration? <laughs> what is brain integration? Brain integration is... there's. There's different types of brain integration. There's horizontal, there's vertical, which has to do with your nervous system. And it's 
basically living your life optimally. So when you're under a lot of stress, there's two parts, like there's the limbic brain and then the prefrontal cortex. Oftentimes when you're under a lot of stress, the limbic brain, which is the fight, flight, freeze mode, that's firing. And your prefrontal cortex, it goes offline. And that's where attuned communication, empathy, insight, fear modulation, all these really higher functions of the brain, they go offline. So the, the brain integration, the workbook, what, what I encourage for caregivers when we're talking about stress here is ways that they can get it, take control of what's happening in their brain so that they can get a better handle on the stress that's causing them health problems too. Right. So that's the, you know, and that feeling that that feeling of lack of control, you know, is probably the number one complaint of caregivers that they just feel like everything is out of control and then when they get stressed out and stay stressed out as you just mentioned, it has it's a it's a physiological response. They actually are more prone to become sick. Um, and I hear you also saying it's actually changing the way that they think. It, it, everything. That, we know that long-term caregivers, the stress for them causes their prefrontal cortex to go offline. So they just have more of a tendency to be in their limbic brain. And besides that, when, they're, when you, someone's under long-term stress, we know, for example, like the stress hormone cortisol is secreting in their body a lot. And that could cause things like your brain to shrink and other health problems. So I wrote the book in memory to my husband, and I really want to say out to all the caregivers out there um, that you matter. And the book is a workbook just to help them get a handle on the stress so it doesn't cause them long-term health problems. What happened to your husband? Uh, I was caregiving him. He had a brain tumor. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2009. I was caregiving him for three years. So that you have you you come from from all of this with uh, experience. Yeah. Yes. I, I I have over ten years experience as a social worker in hospital community case management. The, the workbook is based on my experience not only as a social worker but also my personal experience as a caregiver. Well, what you know, what advice do you when you sit down with a caregiver and you talk about stress and you talk about you know changing the way that they they think and using. Um, their whole brain, you know, what, what, do, how does that translate into layman's terms? What do they actually need to do? Yes. So a uh, one tip would be cultivating intrapersonal strength. So there's some brain science terms. One is called intrapersonal resonance and another is called interpersonal resonance. And what the caregiver does is they tend to externalize a lot where they're just always, always, always thinking about their loved one, talking to the doctors about their loved one, going to support groups where they talk about their loved one like they're externalizing. So they're cultivating that interpersonal resonance, but that intrapersonal resonance, that time with themselves, they're not cultivating that. So that's one example, the tip that I would give the caregiver. So that's when the caregiver feels like they have disappeared. You know, that they're just not in yes. touch with themselves at all anymore. Yes, it's basically a fancy word for it's important to do self-care. Exactly. And <laughs> yes. we, we know from all of the research, the one thing caregivers rarely are willing to do is reach out and ask for help. To do that self-care uh, requires an acknowledgement that you need help. Yes, and I think it's good to understand what happens in the brain because that rigidity is a function of the stress response. So I talk about this river of brain integration, and there are two river banks. One is rigidity and one is chaos. And what you'll find is as you fall off of that river of brain integration, you tend to fall into rigidity or chaos. And a caregiver who's in that place, that stuck place where they're not reaching out and asking for help, Oftentimes, it's because they're stuck in a state of rigidity and they can't really get out of the pattern that they're, as a caregiver, they, you know, they're so overwhelmed that they can't do anything different. Right. That's what I was going to say. A lot of times, caregivers, you know, that's, that's just too much effort. That's one more thing that they have to do. And exactly. That would be breaking, you know, inertia. They're going in this direction. They'd have to change and, and, and involve other people, and they might ask questions. And it can just seem more than they can handle. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, talking with Heidi Crockett, a licensed clinical social worker, as uh, a specialist in dealing with sex and intimacy among seniors, as well as caregiver stress. 
I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, Heidi, as you think about uh, the caregiving that you did, uh, you didn't get married to become a caregiver. Uh, it just happened, right? Right. How did you embrace that, fulfill that responsibility? Well, I mean, I think uh, everyone, I think it happens, you know, and, and you feel love for the person, and it's from that love that the caregiving begins and continues and goes on and on and on. <laughs> so I have a lot of sympathy for caregivers, whatever phase of caregiving they are in. Uh, and I, I found that my, spiritual, my spirituality was an important component of it, and it's why in the book I use this wellness triangle, but the last chapter of the book, I add another dimension and I turn the triangle into a pyramid, and the top tip of the pyramid is a halo of light, and I have the reader name it. I used to call it the spiritual tip, but now it might be God or love, and that last chapter in the book is about meaning-making, the search for meaning. So I found what helped me get through my journey as a caregiver is, is certainly my faith. Well, and that's a huge part of, for many caregivers, and that, that really is a, a source of comfort and strength, you know, as they go along uh, this journey. Uh, but I, I wanted to go back, because you, you talked about these three parts, and you, you talk, we talked about asking for help. We talked about um, the importance of relieving the stress, you know, what other, we've, we've got a couple of minutes left, you know, what other key points would you want to communicate to our caregivers? So there's three tips on that triangle. One is empathic relationships. We touched on relational neuroscience. One tip is integrated brain. I spoke a little bit about that. So the last tip is called coherent mind. And so I have this little phrase I use, which is called mind your mind. And uh, a couple quotes I have from Dr. Dan Siegel is that the mind uses the brain to create itself, and cardiac, endocrine, and immune functions are improved with mindful practices. So your mind is the part of your awareness that's able to focus attention. So you want to practice moving away from your thoughts and going into other experiences that help you and your brain recognize that your experience of reality is so much more than a continuous stream of stressful caregiving thoughts and worries. So just, you know, mindfulness practices. I know in a former radio show someone mentioned the Insight Timer app. Uh, for 4.95, so anything that can help the caregiver just have a few moments where they're able to calm their mind, calm their autonomic nervous system, whether it's yoga or connected breathing, uh, would be my main advice for the coherent. Right. So that's that, that's tip. meditation, yoga, you know, that that living in the now, um, and that's something that's so much more accessible now than it than it used to be. I think. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned that if you go on YouTube.com, you can find meditation yes. videos. So, you know, it isn't something that you have to look for and, and you can't find it. Um, it's, it's fairly common now. But it's also, you know, it, it also is a, it's a good practice. You know, the, there's a lot of research that shows that yoga and meditation has tremendous health benefits uh, physiologically and emotionally, um, and you're talking about it for caregivers. In fact, WellMed Medical Management is uh, bringing in information on mindfulness for physicians, many of whom uh, reach a point where they face burnout. Dr. Robin Eikoff, with whom uh, I do another show called WellMed Radio, 30 minutes a day, every day, uh, does uh, all kinds of meditation, every day, and she finds it invaluable. Yeah, and I think even just taking walks on the beach, what I find with caregivers when we talk about these things is oftentimes they're already doing them. They just don't call it mindfulness. So, I, And if it becomes a task in your brain that you have to do, that can cause more stress. So whatever it is you can do, just one or two minutes out of the day to help calm your nervous system so you're not really at a high state of the clinical term is arousal. You want it to be lowered so you're not stressed out having that cortisol secreting through your body. You want to lower your stress level overall as a caregiver when you can. So what resources, you know, if people want to find out more information about your book or, or where you're speaking next, um, you know, how would they find out more about you, Heidi? So the easiest way is to just go to my website. It's my name. So it's Heidi Crockett, 
That's H-E-I-D-I-C-R-O-C-K-E-T-T.com. And my book is on that website. And I do do trainings. I've done staff trainings like with the Alzheimer's Association on sexuality. and I presented in front of senior centers on that. So I do presentations on stress reduction and then what we were speaking about before on sexual health. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Carol and I both want to thank you for your time. And it uh, it's a fascinating topic. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much. You take care. And we can end this with Go Blue. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That would be the University of Michigan. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, you got it. Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. That's WellMedCharitableFoundation.org. It's time for Take 10. We follow each of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10, a chance to look at hot issues that affect caregivers and others. Carol Zerniel and I are joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known expert on addictions and caregiving. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. So uh, we, we could title this segment, Oi. It's Oy. enough with the worrying. I'm worried about worrying. Yes, so I was looking at an article that was in Next Avenue that was talking about people who are on code red all the time. And I could identify with that, Jamie, because I am a worrier. Um, And what we know from working with our caregivers is caregivers worry about a lot of things. And some of us can just become obsessed with worrying. So why do we worry so much? Why are we worried about worrying? Well, worrying obviously is something that, that's uh, pandemic across the whole country, whether you're a caregiver or not. It does say a lot about our need to get mental health treatment. I think that worrying is a great trigger or red flag, if you will, to, to go talk about it to a therapist. But feeling stressed and feeling worried is normal for caregivers. Uh, but constant worrying, constant and unrelenting doubts and preoccupations with the what-ifs and what's going to happen is terribly unproductive and and it's really paralyzing to somebody. What it does yield, and I think that's what the nature of hopefully the segment will be, is it yields great anxiety and anxiety causes physical symptoms in people and and anxiety reduction techniques is kind of what it's all about if we're going to look at worrying properly. So what do we think we're going to accomplish by worrying? Like what's the root cause? Well, here's the deal, and you've heard me say it way too many times probably, but the more controlling we become, probably the more out of control we are in our minds. So worrying is very similar. If we're feeling out of control in our minds, we're worrying that we're not on two feet, uh, and we start controlling somewhat our our environment. Uh, When I worked with caregivers clinically over the years, um, I would always tell caregivers or mention to them, I'd try to facilitate, I wouldn't tell them anything, Find 30 to 60 minutes to dedicate in the course of a day and call it your worry time. Uh, So you have it kind of boundaries from the rest of the day. If you have to worry, if you have to stress over something, then um, schedule the worry time. I've got a friend who has a uh, a little project people can do with themselves. Uh, A guy who's a therapist in San Antonio who says, look, here's what you do psychologically, you wrap that worry up in a little ball, roll your car window down, and throw it out the window. 
I, I think it's a great idea, and what we do in our clinical world is similar to that, is we have people take a piece of paper out and write the worries down, every one of them, exhaustively, as much as they can, like a brain dump, and then take it, read it, and um, we say put it into the God file or, or, or fire it up with a flame. Uh, and then in symbolically, in some metaphorical way, you're getting uh, the rid worry of zone will dissipate. Yeah. So, so during that hour, that that hour we set aside to half put hour. all of let's, our worries, let's say half hour, half hour that we're doing that. Is that what you would recommend? Is that I might sit down and get out a piece of paper and write down all my worries and just get it out of my system? No doubt, I really do. I also think that the first steps to identifying our anxiety is to recognize the physical changes. You know. Um, I know when I'm anxious, I'll be in bed for hours tossing and turning, but but can't sleep. And then you just rehash the day's events and, and you go around that. But, you know, anxiety creates a, a lot of things, butterflies in your stomach and shortness of breath and, and, and a rapid heartbeat. And so it's very, very concerning that worrying is the exacerbator of many medical conditions. And then there's some people who, because of the awful stuff in the news, uh, adapt a lot of what's going on in the world around them into their own lives and begin to worry about it. There yeah, that, was, that's but, like I can't, I can't listen to, um, you know, the bomb explosions in the Middle East with the soldiers anymore because I start having nightmares about bomb explosions in the Middle East. I just, I can't do you know, it anymore. I, I, both of you are a hundred percent correct. And when I work with people with compassion fatigue and burnout. I say turn off that, that television, that CNN, uh, which is basically crisis news network, okay? That's what I call it. Um, and, and, or, or Fox or whatever you're watching that's that drumbeat behind you that's showing those bombs, that's showing the absolute political mayhem of our country. Uh, things that actually create this worrying does not have to be going on like a, 24-hour stereo behind you, but families often do. The best thing you can do is turn off that television. So the, and practice it, relaxation, by the way. That's yeah. what you could do in this place. Hold that thought. I want to remind folks you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer, with Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Jamie Heisman. So in the movie Bridge of Spies, the actor that won the Best Supporting Actor Award, and I can't say his name off the top of my head, the Irish actor, you know, he, he in the movie he's famous because he's a convicted spy, uh, uh, or I should say he's a suspected spy, he's on trial, and Tom Hanks looks at him and says, you don't, you know, you could get executed for this, you know, you don't seem to be worrying much, and he's like, would it help? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, do, he doesn't worry about anything. He doesn't seemingly doesn't worry about anything. So well, you know, it, it, yeah. are, are are some people more prone to worry than others, or is that just our approach to life? Is that the way we come at things? I think we build up um, somewhat of a healthy resilience. Obviously, if you've gone through hell, it, it seems to be that you can really appreciate coming out on the other side and, and a bit of heaven. Um, but in the case of what you're describing as somebody who's probably been through worrying, been through anxiety, been through trauma, um, and has emerged from it and then either has this existential doesn't matter sort of feel or is on two feet just because experientially they've weathered the storm. I really believe that we should be encouraging the way you do with caregiver SOS and, and through caregiver teleconnection, um, getting caregivers to practice relaxation techniques. Um, get them to, to learn how to find their breath, to breathe slowly, to, if you will, do yoga. Go online and literally just put in caregivers and meditation and see where it takes you. Well, that was one of the recommendations in the Next Avenue article. They said if you go to YouTube.com and type in meditation, that there are hundreds of meditation um, videos that you can sit down and meditate with so you don't have to be an expert you don't have to have fancy technology if you have a smartphone you have access to a meditation video but but are some people genetically wired uh, to be worriers to see the glass as half empty absolutely i mean this is a, a nurturance piece i mean if you looked at my family i i, I could point to the people who had their spoons in everybody's soup that was worrying about the unknown, and, and the unknown is what we're talking about here, playing a huge role in this anxiety. Um, it's the unpredictability when people need to know 100% uh, 
what's going to happen. The belief system for me is like an addict getting well from recovery is that we have to surrender. We have to surrender and to let go of the outcome. And we're, we're responsible for our effort, but not for the outcome. But when you think you have to control everything, um, then, then you believe that obviously you become an anxious pool of, of, of water, if you will, 24-7. Well, I think your, you know, your recommendation on meditation and yoga you know, is fantastic. I, I also find that for myself, if I'll do you know, aerobic exercise, something either dancing, running, biking, something that really gets my heart rate up um, from an exercise standpoint, that helps calm me down. It helps clear my head. And, and, and one last thing I want to mention before our segment ends is make sure you avoid the triggers that create the worrying. And a lot of them can be, you know, just as you mentioned, it could be poor diet, it's physical, uh, caffeine, smoking, things like that, or uh, even too much sugar, if you will, and alcohol, of course, which we talked about last week, um, can be true you know, exacerbators of worrying. And, and for those uh, who just can't seem to get a handle on it, I haven't heard you say what you usually say, go talk to somebody, find a therapist. Uh, Oh, my gosh. If you're a caregiver, even if the worrying hasn't come yet, find that therapist. But you're right on target, Ron. You can't have a, a more appropriate uh, place to go than a 9 by 12 room with somebody you trust and love and somebody who you can connect with and cry with and somebody who gives you total confidentiality to discuss this. So uh, forgive me for not having that as the mantra, but if you are experiencing worrying and a sense of uncertainty, that's the first place to go to to talk about it. And the second place would be, again, to find a support group, get a reality check from the people around you in the group. And that light at the end of the tunnel is not an oncoming freight train. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't have to be outside. The external doesn't have to be the light, Ron. You can have that light within. Got to stop you right there, Dr. Jamie. Thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. If you want to hear more of our Take 10s, they're all available on podcast. You can just Google Caregiver SOS on air. You'll find the Caregiver shows and all our podcasts, and they're available for free. So check them out. For Carol Zerniel, Dr. Jamie Heisman, and me, Ron Aaron, you all have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.